Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and today we are talking about the science of snow, the art of avalanche forecasting, and what every backcountry traveler can be submitting to your local AVI Center that will enable more accurate forecasts regardless of how much you yourself happen to know about snow science. Now, joining us today is Zach Guy, who is the lead forecaster for the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. Zach started AVI forecasting for the CBAC and Irwin Guides back in 2011 after finishing his master's degree in snow science at Montana State University. He then left Crested Butte for a few years to go direct the Flathead Avalanche Center in northwest Montana, but then our prodigal son returned to the Gunnison Valley and the Crested Butte Avalanche Center in the fall of 2020 to take over as the CBAC's lead forecaster. A few days ago, Zach and I sat down in Blister HQ here in Mount Crested Butte to talk about how he got into snow science and AVI forecasting, why forecasting is still very much an art. Yes, that does take into account snow science, but the forecasting itself, still an art. We talk about how both forecasting and snow science have evolved. We talk about Zach's own forecasting process and what the life and the schedule of a forecaster looks like. And then importantly, which I mentioned at the top, Zach talks about what each of us can be submitting to our local AVI centers that can really help produce more accurate forecasts. So for a whole bunch of reasons, this was a really good conversation that I think will offer some valuable takeaways. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you find it beneficial. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you that our very first ever Blister Summit is kicking off on February 18th, and I'm very happy to report that we've been getting good snow here in Crested Butte, and it's looking like we're going to be picking up a good bit more this week. Not jinxing anything, I'm just reporting the news. And we're also going to be talking more about the Blister Summit on this week's Gear 30 podcast. But for now, you can get a ton of information about the Blister Summit if you go to our homepage at blisterreview.com or you can go to any page of our website and just click on the navigation bar where it says Blister Summit. And at the summit, you're going to have a pretty unique opportunity to get on a bunch of new skis from the likes of Wonder Alpine and Rossignol and Folsom Custom Skis and Forefront and Wagner Custom Skis and Dinastar and Icelandic. And you're going to get to meet a number of the founders and some of the key people at these brands. And you're going to get to meet and ski with a number of our charming reviewers. They're all charming, regardless of what I say about all of them when we do those Reviewing the Reviewer podcasts. It's all just jokes, except when I'm talking about Sam Shaheen. Those are no jokes. All the bad things about Sam are true. But he's going to be at the summit, too. I'm actually really excited to see Sam. I confess, it's been a minute. Sam, I miss you. 
Anyway, we are really excited about this inaugural Blister Summit, and skiers of all ability levels are welcome. So please do not do that thing that all of us do, by the way, is like worry that if we're coming to some group or something that like I'm not going to be a good enough skier. Just don't worry about that. It's going to be fun. I promise you're going to have a good time. And again, yeah, head to our website or our homepage to get a whole lot more details about the Blister Summit. And with that, let's now go ahead and get to my conversation with Zach Guy. Here we go. Well, Zach, welcome to Blister Headquarters. It's great to be here. It's kind of hard to find, but I made it. <laughs> we like to keep things on the down low, you know? You got to want it. It's a maze. Level C of the elevation spa. I found it, though. Yeah. Well, this is it's like an IQ test. Like, if you can't <laughs> find where we are, then you don't get to be on the podcast. So, it's, you know, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation we've got today. We're going to be talking about forecasting and some snow science, and maybe we should start calling it snow art. We'll get into that a little bit. But for starters, let's talk a little bit about your current position. You work for the CBAC. Tell us what that is and what you do there. Yep. I'm the uh, lead forecaster for the Crested Butte Avalanche Center based here in Crested Butte. Full-time job forecasting three days a week out in the field three days a week and kind of overseeing all of our, our forecast products. We've got a staff of two other full-time forecasters and then a handful of part-time kind of field observers, interns, if you will, and some outreach folks as well. So we've got a team of about six people um, and I'm kind of in charge of all things forecasting. Yeah. And you've got a pretty interesting background in that you have bounced around and spent some time in some different places. It's actually one of the things we're going to be talking about here, but why don't we kind of back up for a sec and just talk a bit about your own background where you grew up and then into your own education. Yeah, absolutely. Grew up in Colorado, uh, mostly in Estes Park, which is in northern Colorado. And, you know, I was a total rookie when it comes to backcountry skiing. I was, I love skiing. I grew up, you know, we skied Winter Park uh, all the time. I love skiing moguls. And then went to college in Bellingham, Washington to study geology. And probably my first or second day skiing at Mount Baker, I was out there saw the fresh powder outside of the lift outside of the um boundary lines and saw people skiing it and and ducked the rope to go ski it myself and there was a ski patrol who just grabbed me by the cuff of my jacket and said what are you doing out there you don't have a pack you clearly don't know what you're doing and and that was my first real introduction to avalanches um or avalanche awareness and they brought me down to patrol headquarters they gave me like a 10-minute avalanche awareness talk Next year, I signed up for my level one avalanche class and got all the gear. I got the, you know, the AT setup and and shovel pro beacon, all the rest, and got into it through there. Got really excited about backcountry skiing, fell in love with it. Went after college, I went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming for two winters as a ski bum, just worked night jobs so I could ski every day. And then kind of knew the whole time that I wanted to get into snow science and avalanche forecasting. And so, you know, I'd been looking around at opportunities and landed on Montana State University in Bozeman. And so after my little stint in Jackson Hole, I went to Bozeman for about two and a half years of grad school, got my master's degree there, um, studying snow science and, and then came back to Crested Butte, uh, got a internship at Irwin my first year and got 
fully immersed in everything Crested Butte. I started submitting observations to the Crested Avalanche Center along with working at Irwin full-time. And then the next year I got hired as a forecaster for the CBAC. Kind of worked my way up the ranks and um, before long I was the director of the CBAC. And then kind of had like a midlife crisis when I was, when I hit about 30 years old and I uh, wanted to see what else was out there in the world. So I, I took a job directing the Flathead Avalanche Center up in Northwest Montana. It's near Whitefish. Did that for three years and learned a lot more about a different snowpack up there and then kind of realized how much I missed, missed Crested Butte. And here I am. I just started, I just came back here this fall um, and they brought me back and I'm psyched about this position. It's allows me before I was the director, which was everything from fundraising to events to forecasting. And, and now I can, I think, focus a little bit more on the forecasting side of things, which is my, I think my bread and butter and what I enjoy the most. So you're like a proper snow science dork. Yeah. I feel like there's three key things about you and, you know, we'll see if this, you know, this conversation proves this to be true. You love backcountry skiing. You're a proper snow science dork and you like throwing explosives. Those are all true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I think this checks out. You sound like I'm talking to a, a good person here. The guys at Irwin would call me the professor because I, because I have a strong snow science background, but I also come to work every day with a really disheveled haircut. And I think I wasn't up to their grooming standards for, you know, clientele. And so I, I got the, my, I think my one most critical you know, like mid-season review was like, Zach, maybe you should comb your hair before you come to work. <laughs> but it's this like kind of mad scientist look, I guess. And I'm, I feel like I'm thinking about snow and like crunching, you know, equations in my head more than most people do. <laughs> well, and this is actually one of the reasons why I was interested in having this conversation, right? Because we have had, I feel like a few of the previous conversations where we've been talking about backcountry safety on some of our other blister podcasts or maybe occasionally on gear 30 we have been talking a bit more about the decision making aspect of backcountry travel and backcountry safety the kind of the human factor and that stuff is great and i know that you think that's really important but i thought in this conversation while I'm sure we will be talking a bit about decision-making and the human element, we are going to get into a little bit more maybe than we have on some of the snow science stuff. So, you know, don't apologize for the mad scientist here. <laughs> it's, it's, a welcome, it's a welcome thing for this particular conversation. Great. I'm happy to talk about yeah. it. Let's go back to then this first experience of yours where you're like the ski patroller yanks you and you're like, kid, what are you doing? So like, what year is that? That would have been 2003, I think. Okay. Yeah. And... Through undergrad then, is this when you really start like taking courses and really getting into this? Or was that not until you went off to do a proper master's degree that you really started digging in? Yeah, that that first year, 2003, when I got pulled out, that was the start of my kind of trajectory into, into the snow science world. So like, I think it was the next year, maybe my sophomore year in college, I took my level one avalanche course. And Part of it was I think I just wanted to like fill all the hoops so that I could jump into the backcountry without getting scolded by the ski patrollers. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, well, we got to have this so I can do it. So, but as I, you know, taking the course, then I think I got more excited about science of, of the snow and, and was kind of jealous of the guy who taught the class. I was like, that's like my dream job, this guy teaching 
walking through snow, skiing every day and looking at the snow. So I, I got pretty excited about that and kind of set me off on that path. I think I took my level two after college when I was in Jackson Hole. And then I took a Av Pro, which is kind of similar to a level three, also while I was in Jackson Hole. So I kind of like got really immersed in it once I moved to to Jackson. But I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of fortunate to be alive after skiing, you know, when I was in Colorado as a high schooler, I, I went into the back country sometimes total rookie. Like we would literally would boot pack up things with, we'd, I'd, I'd go with my brother. We'd wear Sorrells. Uh, we'd carry ski boots in our backpack. We'd change it in the top of the run and we'd ski down. We didn't have beacons, didn't have a clue about avalanches. And I, I know that we were in avalanche train sometimes. And I'm just like, wow, how, how I survived a Colorado snowpack in my youth without knowing anything about it was great. Wow. <laughs> I'm lucky. So you never had, when you were a high school student, at least never had any like real close calls. You just, you got lucky. Yeah. Just got lucky. We would, I remember like we would go to these, this area with a lot of like rock bands and pillows. And I remember triggering avalanches on, as we'd be skiing down and they're just all really small. And I don't know if we had the gear or like ability to get into bigger terrain at the time, but I mean, still like now I know, you know, even small slopes can cause trouble on certain days. So just, yeah, just rookies out there. And I'm, I'm glad I had that experience because I, I can relate now to folks who are in the same position. And, you know, I feel like sometimes the backcountry community is a bit entitled and they can be like, well, I can't believe they would go out there without a shovel or without a beacon or like they'd ski a slope on that kind of day. And it's like, I was there too. I know exactly why people would do that. Sometimes they just don't know, you know. Let's talk a bit about different snowpacks. And I'm curious to see whether you feel like you can make some meaningful generalizations here or if this whole question just kind of unravels and we'll see where this goes, right? But you've just talked about, you've spent time in Bellingham around Baker. You've spent time in around Bozeman. You've spent time around Whitefish. You've spent a good amount of time around here in the Gunnison Valley. For those who maybe haven't heard or don't have the best handle on like some of these differences, yeah. what generalizations would you comfortably make? Yeah, I feel like I've I've sort of migrated from a more forgiving and generally safer snowpack out in Washington to like one of the worst snowpacks in the country, if not the worst here in Crested Butte. And, you know, every mountain region that you go to has dangerous conditions at times and can see really big avalanches but around as you come towards a more continental snow climate like we have here in Colorado there are so many days that are really challenging to make good choices in avalanche training and it can be really hard to get good feedback on the snowpack sometimes so I you know out out in the west coast it's like a I'll just generalize but you get a lot of warm storms you don't get long high pressure systems and you just don't get the persistent weak layer development that we see here as often it or when it does it usually gets crushed pretty quickly so you get these deeper stronger snowpacks that you can trust after a storm you know you, you have a a spike in avalanche danger when a storm comes in and and it's kind of a no-brainer to stay off of the snow when it's just snowed two or three feet overnight and then like a day later sometimes you're out on 45 degree slopes and you know doing it comfortably without this uncertainty of like, what if I can trigger a deeper layer and things heal up pretty quickly there. Um, 
you know, moving kind of towards this inner mountain snow climate, which is what I had in Jackson Hole or maybe more in Whitefish as you get, you know, some persistent weak layers. Generally, the snowpack gets deeper through the winter and oftentimes you kind of reach a point where you're not as worried about deeper weak layers and, and usually you're just managing storm instabilities, which are a lot more predictable and a lot easier to kind of make decisions around. And then come out to here in, in Colorado and we've got these you know, notoriously tricky weak layers where we get weak layers near the ground that form early season and they just continue to plague us all winter long. We get persistent weak layers that form midwinter that continue to plague us all winter long. So we have these weak layers that just are challenging to deal with. And, it, and it's rare to have like to drop into a steep slope midwinter and feel really comfortable that there's no concern somewhere in the snowpack unless you've really done your homework and understood like where does this layer exist or has this layer flushed from an avalanche previously or whatever, you know, there's, there's always exceptions to getting into steep terrain, I think, but for the most part, there's a lot more uncertainty around here. And, and, you know, the stats show it, we, Colorado has the most fatalities in the country. Um, we have a lot of users, but we also have a really tricky snowpack. Yeah. So let's maybe talk about some of the different areas of Colorado, right? Like, I think a lot of people have kind of heard like, yeah, Colorado has a tricky snowpack. So if you had to then start creating a few more finer distinctions about say Silverton area versus Telluride versus the Gunnison Valley versus other areas in Colorado, how would you want to start chopping up some of those? Yeah. Like there's obviously some seasonality and fluctuations every year. So there's I don't want to get too general, but one interesting point is like the the northern kind of front range mountains tend to get a lot more wind. That can, you know, help and hurt things in a sense. Like wind can destroy weak layers, but it can also, it makes for a lot harder, denser, like kind of more challenging slabs, harder to survive slabs. Around Crested Butte, I think we've got a a real kind of exceptional situation where we have the worst inversions in the state of Colorado and perhaps the whole West, uh, where we get Gunnison Valley gets, you know, negative 20 during high pressure spells where we'll get, you know, the mountain temperatures might be 20 degrees, but the Crestbeat Valley and Gunnison, the temperatures will drop to horrible cold (laughs) temperatures overnight. And because of that, we see like really strong temperature inversion or temperature gradients within the snowpack. So we, I think we get some of the worst weak layers of anywhere just because of those a generally shallow snowpack with a really cold temperature, overnight temperatures, which creates a strong temperature inversion or temperature gradient through the snowpack. So I think we get really weak, weak layers. We don't have the wind that maybe destroys those weak layers as often. And then, and then we also get some pretty big storms, like unusually large storms for a continental snowpack. So all that kind of comes together to create like pretty exciting conditions. It's one of the reasons why I love it here is that I, I'm challenged professionally as as a forecaster and I get to see really exciting avalanche cycles. I'm not as fluent on the San Juan mountains, but you know, I think they get kind of a mix of, of big storms and they get a little bit more wind They can certainly produce some really exciting avalanche cycles down there. And yeah, kind of a generality, but you know, I, th- I think that elk mountains are, are really kind of in the middle of the state have some really exciting characteristics to them. Yeah. And if nothing else, I think it's maybe just a good reminder to some people that 
like if you're coming into Colorado or traveling within Colorado, right? Like we're not talking about a monolith, right? Just because it kind of has, it's all within this sort of drawn out state borders. So again, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, yeah, yeah, dude, we know we get it. It's like, yep, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure some other people maybe aren't thinking about these things. Yeah, there's there's a fair amount of variability across the state on a given season during a given storm cycle even. I mean, there are some storms that completely miss the southern half of the state and they're pounding the northern half of the state and vice versa. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of regional differences going on on any given day um, across the state. Yeah. So we're going to talk a bit about forecasting and turns out forecasting itself, not the simplest thing in the world. One of the things that I thought would be interesting is to just talk a little bit about how forecasting has evolved maybe in the last year to five years, maybe in the last five to 10 years, but I guess I'm less hung up on attaching a specific timeline to just hearing what you would say are maybe two or three of the biggest things that we, our understanding of snowpacks or snow science has kind of evolved over recent years and what you think some of the most significant of those answers would be. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with maybe the the public front of the forecast where, you know, 20 years ago or so, I think it was a hotline that people would call into and the forecaster would read the forecast over the, this phone recording. And, and it's come quite a bit since then, obviously. And, and it's great that we have all these other resources to share the information with the public. Obviously, like our websites do a great job of demonstrating all the avalanche concerns and using media to show it. And we, you know, we also target people through social media now, and we have a lot of different um, outreach platforms that we're reaching people with. So, yeah. So how has forecasting evolved, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years? Um, in a lot of ways, there are some, some real similarities still. It's still very field-based. Um, we go out, you know, document the snow layers, document the avalanche activity, come back, look at weather forecasts, look at, you know, remote weather stations to see how much it snowed. And a lot of those pieces of the puzzle are, are still there. There's kind of more, um, it's an evolving, you know, science behind forecasting. And as, you know, as we progress here into the future, we're, we're seeing a better understanding of how avalanches fail, better tools for modeling and kind of predicting avalanches. So that's some of the, the developments that have come more, maybe more on the research side of things still that haven't been like fully applied yet on all forecast centers. But um, I think it's, it's sort of this evolving science that we're looking at. Yeah. And, you know, I asked you like, how has forecasting evolved? And you immediately talked about public outreach. And I actually was thinking more about sort of the snow science aspect of it. So I actually like that. It's like, yeah, forecasting is absolutely both, right? It's like, if we're just sitting around doing snow science and not telling anyone or communicating that any more effectively, what are we doing here? Right? So forecasting very much involves something that I think in my question, I was a little bit overlooking that communication, getting that messaging out. And so you address that. Right. Public communication is, is that half of forecasting. It's not only what's 
happening with the snowpack, but how do we communicate that to the public? And, and that, you know, I could elaborate a little bit more on that is like how we are communicating the hazards to the public has really evolved substantially in the last 10 years or so. There's a kind of a, a standard, I don't know, breakthrough paper that came out recently, the conceptual model of avalanche hazard, which is a kind of a guideline for all forecasters that we're basing our forecasts off. And it, it describes like, how do we define avalanche problems? How do we define the likelihood of these problems? How do we define the danger? Like, how do all these problems come into a danger rating and sort of walks through the, the systematic process of forecasting for, for avalanche hazards. So that's one of the tools that we use along with, you know, like our, our public front of, of showing these problems on the forecast page. I'm sure as folks or may or may not know, like just the development of avalanche problems, that was something that came about, I think, I don't know, six or eight years ago or something where before, you know, there's just different, we recognize there's different flavors of avalanches and there might be, you might have the same kind of avalanche hazard on a day, but there might be two different types of problems that are very different to manage. So the way you move about terrain might be totally different. If it's a wind slab problem, you're looking for it, you know, right below ridge lines or cross loaded features. If it's a persistent slab problem, you're managing, you're moving through the train quite a bit differently. So um, that's one of the things that's emerged is just like, how do we present avalanche information to a way that people can use it? And I, I think that's been a great, you know, um, contribution is, is this, the avalanche problems along with the danger scale um, that we use on our forecast now. And that's been something that's been being taught in avalanche classes now. And so it's consistent across our users and, and that's one of the tools for sure. Hmm. on the public yeah. communication side of things. Yeah. I gotta say too, like, I mean, one of the reasons that we at Blister are supporters of the CBAC is like, it's so basic sounding, but you know, if, if I get on social media or one of us does to post something or we're scrolling, it's like, and bam, here's the post from the CBAC. When I'm not thinking about, it's like, I might not be touring anytime in the next three days or seven days, but it comes up, it's right there. It's part of everyday life. And I'm like, it's great, right? Like I'm constantly being kept up to date. I'm not, even when I'm not actively seeking it out. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's like kind of really good. So anyway, there's a, thanks, thanks that's, for that. That's good to hear. Cause in some ways I wish we were just back still in the, phone recording days where it's just <laughs> one product, but now it's, there's a lot of, we're trying to reach everybody on every yeah. level. So it's website, email, radio, social media, yeah. and it, it makes it more involved. But I think, like you said, it's valuable. It reaches people on different levels. Yeah. Should we talk about then some of the snow science itself and how some of that has been evolving? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got the hairdo for it, so we'd be <laughs> remiss to not, you know, to not go down this road. I've kind of gotten shorter hair than maybe a couple of years ago. It used to be really long and wild, oh, yeah? but yeah. <laughs> where, where should we start when we're talking about how snow science has evolved? Yeah, I, I think maybe we can go right off of where I was talking about the conceptual model of avalanche hazard and maybe why that or one of the purposes of that is, is that we have recognized that there's inconsistencies between forecasters within a forecast center or within, you know, from region to region around the country, around the world. And there's been a number of recent studies, maybe in the last four or five years that have highlighted this, where they've actually taken 
forecasters from all over the country or all over the world, they've given them these snowpack scenarios where it's like, here's the snowpack structure, here's the amount of snow that fell overnight, here's the winds, what's your danger rating? And they've shown that between all of our forecasters, who are people who are you know, experienced and proficient in forecasting, there's a pretty wide spectrum of just something as simple as the avalanche hazard a wide spectrum of results for a given scenario. And it's, it's a little disconcerting, right? You, you'd like to think that we all nail it or we're all consistent with each other every single day. But the reality is that there's uncertainty with forecasting. There's different perceptions on, on how to interpret the danger scale. And so there's been this goal to kind of strive for better consistency around the country between forecasters within our within our own state. So um, one of those, you know, like one of the things that, that has brought about better consistency is that conceptual model of avalanche hazard where we can kind of define, like when we say likely, what does likely mean? You know, like, like I bet if I ask random Joe what likely means, is it, does that mean you can trigger an avalanche on three out of 10 slopes, on seven out of 10? Like there's, there's a lot of ways that you can interpret that, I'm sure. And so part of this, this document or guidance document it helps us kind of define what does likely mean. And, and we have sort of definitions and, and hopefully that helps us kind of fall closer to each other. There's still going to be inconsistency between forecasters. That's, that's the nature of, of our work and we're trying to eliminate that, but it helps us kind of line up a little bit better with each other. And, and so that's, that's just one example of some kind of progress that's been made in the last five or so years, I'd say. Should we talk then about what does likely mean? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we have this matrix that we use when we're defining the likelihood. One is it's it's based on two things, the distribution of the problem across the terrain and the sensitivity of the problem. So distribution means like how like if you were to look at a whole forecast area and you're going to say like on how many of these slopes do I think I would find this problem? And we, we rate it, it's pretty simple. We rate on a kind of a three tiered scale. One is widespread, meaning I could see it on almost every slope that I go to, I expect to find evidence of the problem. Um, that might be say a storm slab problem that snows 20 inches. And you're like, I know that there's gonna be 20 inches of the snow all around the compass, all, all elevations and aspects, and that's a widespread problem. Specific is the next one down. It means it's it's terrain characteristics with similar, um, or terrain with similar characteristics. It might be like leeward aspects on certain parts of the compass rows or something like that. Um, really steep terrain or, there, you know, certain sort of defining characteristics. That's not everything, not all avalanche terrain, but just certain certain characteristics. And then the last one is isolated which means it's generally hard to find evidence of it through the train. We know it exists, but it's, it's pretty spotty, um, you know, hit or miss. And so those are the three kind of like spatial distributions. On the other side of the scale is the sensitivity. And so um, the most sensitive is touchy, which means there's a lot of natural avalanches occurring and it's, it's just hair trigger. Like you walk up to a slope and you're going to get results. Uh, the next one down is reactive, which means maybe a few naturals, uh, easy to ski, tr easy to trigger with skis, like on a ski cut, something like that. Next one down is stubborn, meaning, you know, like harder to trigger, maybe a, a cornice drop or maybe just hitting the wrong spot on the slope, maybe jumping really hard on the slope. Like it's, it's harder to trigger. And then the last one is unreactive, which basically means we don't expect activity on that layer anymore. So, 
So likely, the most common scenario where I see likely on our likelihood matrix is when you have a specific problem with uh, reactive. Now, if we'll, we'll go up to very likely if it's a widespread problem that's reactive or if it's a specific problem that's touchy. That's In those two situations, that would take us to very likely. A pretty common one you'll see that kind of oftentimes we associate with moderate danger is, is an avalanche problem that's possible. It's possible it can cover a whole spectrum. That could be an isolated problem that's reactive, so it's hard to find through the train. But if you do find it, it's pretty easy to trigger, or it might be a problem that's specific or even widespread that's stubborn, which means it's kind of hard to trigger. You can trigger it in, in some situations, and the problem exists through a lot of the terrain. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different like flavors of possible, if you will. Um, you know, and there's been some look at like, how do other scientists classify these terms possible, likely, very likely. And the, the one kind of document that we've looked at is the, I think it's the International Climate Prediction Center. It's ICPP something. I don't exactly know the name, but but they have a likelihood um, scale that they use probabilistic. So they use new, um, numbers like a percentage rating for likelihood. And, and theirs would be, you know, likely would be something between 50 to, I think it's 75% uh, means likely and above 75% means very likely. I think maybe above 95% is almost certain. So they have, they use uh, more uh, numeric probabilities to define that. And we've found that for avalanche forecasting, that's a harder thing to translate to the public and for ourselves even to, to put, you know, numeric probabilities. And maybe that's a direction that we could go someday. Um, but right now, I think it's, we're not quite there yet. I love this so much because at the top we started, I kind of made the bit of the joke. We're talking about snow science or snow art. And I think even if people just lost you a bit in the last couple minutes, it's like, yeah, this is why there are discrepancies among forecasters. And I think you just made it real easy for people to understand how a couple different forecasters or forecasting centers could arrive at a different evaluation Right. Well done. I don't know if you were trying to, but you just gave us an outstanding example of like, well, what do you mean? Like these different forecast centers disagree. Why would that be? It's like, well, that's exactly. why. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we've even like, there's been studies and polls done on the public. And it's like, when we say likely, what do you envision? And there's a full spectrum of what people think of when they think of likely, you know, it's like, does that mean that every other slope I go to, I'm going to trigger. doesn't mean like, you know, one out of 10 slopes, there's, there's just a full spectrum there. And so it's interesting to see. And it, you know, I think it's a point that we all recognize is imperfect. We're like, no one loves the use of the term likely or possible, but we do want to show that there's this changing likelihood of the problem. We're trying to get to the, the best way to do that. By the way, this reminds me a lot of what we do at blister, which is a lot of like we try to think really hard about how to review products, the gear we're using, right, in a really meaningful way. And I will not infrequently use the term acceptably vague mm -hmm. because one of the things is if we are being overdetermined in an assessment, that's misleading. 
Exactly. So being appropriately vague, properly vague, that's like a thing. And I'll quit with the gear analogy here in a second, but you know, sometimes we'll hear from a somebody in our audience that's like, why aren't you putting forward more specific numbers on like ski flex? When I become convinced that that is a really meaningful, significant single element for evaluating and helping people determine whether a ski is going to be a good fit for them, I'm open to that. I don't think we're there today. So I think a couple of like mechanical engineering dorks, no offense, mechanical engineering dorks, we love you. I think a couple people would love to see that data for their spreadsheets. I don't think that's a meaningful move for us to do if the primary goal is to line people up with the best information to help them assess, should they go buy that $800 ski or that $800 ski, right? So I think like, and we're all chopping this up and we're all trying to learn more, you know, look at new techniques, look at new ways of evaluating this stuff. We do it when it comes to say gear reviews. And certainly sounds like in the forecasting community, we got to keep thinking about, are we being appropriately vague here or unhelpfully vague here? Right. I, I think you hit like nail on the head there with appropriately vague. And they're like, I, I would love to be able to say like, you have a 45% chance of triggering avalanche today, but I don't think we have that, you know, skill set yet as, as forecasters to predict it that accurately. And so we, we have to use these terms that are a little bit vague um, understandably so, because we, we, we just don't have the precision yet to say, like, to put a really solid number on it, um, for a lot of, for a lot of days anyways. So I, I, I saw a great talk this fall. It was at one of our snow workshops and it was a, a tornado forecaster who tested there's somebody in the front range of Boulder. I think she, she tested various methods of communicating tornado hazards to the public and try to get like a sense of which ones worked best. And they, and they actually found, I think that the numeric um, style of communication actually was most effective. They could say like a 30% chance of a tornado coming into their area versus like, you know, a tornado is likely or possible. And I, I think, or watched that talk and I was like, you know, I, I'd love to see us go that direction. And, and so that maybe leads me into the next point of like, what else is progressing in the snow science world? And one of them is, is snowpack modeling. And I think with that, there may be, you know, sometime down the future, we may be able to put a better uh, numeric probability on, on these, on avalanche hazards and, and give kind of like you do a weather forecast where you point and click and it says like 60% chance of thunder showers today like wouldn't that be great if that's if you could point and click around a map and say 30 percent chance of triggering an avalanche is two feet thick today you know and like i think that'd be pretty cool and so we are in this situation where or we're in this kind of evolving science where we are modeling the snowpack now we're able to um, take weather parameters that come in from you know snow wind temperature and and the this is kind of the Swiss have been developing this this model called the snowpack model and and they're able to you know model the structure of the snowpack for a given location and then if you can apply that 
those weather parameters across, you know, a weather forecast for a whole region, then you can start to pick up snowpack structure for all these different points around a region if you can make, you know, weather model points for all these different locations. And so we're actually seeing that now for the first time really being applied in a kind of forecaster practical way in like Avalanche Canada this this last year they started using avalanche modeling where they're or sorry snowpack modeling where they're able to produce some really great kind of like comp like regional scale snowpack models where they can kind of visually see what how the snowpack the, the modeled snowpack structure changes across terrain um, just from the the seat of a computer you know and it comes at the risk of us field field junkies losing our our field presence i i'm kind of joking there i don't think that's any that we're anywhere near that but it's another tool that forecasters are using and someone used an analogy i think at one of these talks recently was you know we're at the stage right now where weather forecasting weather modeling was maybe back in the 50s 1950s and so back then they used course models to help kind of guide some decisions with weather forecasting but a lot of it was field-based it was like go outside look at the sky what kind of clouds are there look at the data coming from your various weather instruments around the country and kind of predict what's going to happen with the weather that has evolved tremendously now where to the point where we have high resolution weather models that are like pretty darn good at predicting our weather to the you know within you know a 36 to 48 hour time window we can get a really good sense of what's happening with the weather that's that's all because of weather modeling where they're they're using physical based weather models to to kind of model what's happening in the atmosphere and tell us what's going to happen. And of course, weather models aren't perfect. Um, and, and there's still weather forecasters that bring their experience and their understanding of weather models to the equation to tell us to kind of interpret models and understand the biases and models and, and give a better like forecast than what the models can do. We are as snow scientists, we're in this early phase of modeling the snow where we're still a ways off from you know, modern weather forecasting, but we're at a point where we can, we can sort of start to model what's happening with the snowpack. And I could see like, hopefully in the future, um, this point where we're able to really accurately model and predict, you know, avalanche activity better than we're able to do right now, which is an exciting concept, right? Hmm. Yeah. So wait, were you making a prediction there? One, you think this will happen in that we will advance in this direction. Yes. True. Yeah, I think we're moving in that direction. And when do you suspect we might be getting there? Is this two years, five years, 10 years, 10 years plus? Uh, I think 10 years plus still. Yeah. I don't know. It, I've seen it evolve just in the last five years and it's getting better, but there still is the, you know, I'd, I'd say like anecdotally, I've worked with, with snowpack models. We, we use them quite a bit up in Northwest Montana we're kind of a data sparse area up there. So we didn't have as much field presence. So we, we looked at models a lot and I'd say like they generally have a pretty good sense at modeling the snowpack structure when the weather forecasts are right. So there's obviously that's the first thing is like we need the weather forecasts to improve and then we'll have better success with snowpack modeling. But the harder thing is predicting is not just modeling the structure of the snowpack, but predicting when instabilities occur and and modeling that and I, that's the i think the been the crux for the snowpack modelers is trying to, to kind of hone the modeling to a point where they can like have an index that tells us when activity is beginning and i think 
there's still a lot of forecaster skill in that that the models don't have. Forecaster meaning like people, humans. And still we there's still uncertainty, of course, with forecasters. So I like this because I think like this is the stuff that we've been doing from the jump and it's cool hearing in a whole different capacity, right? Like bringing down, like how do we talk about this in a meaningful way that gives people useful information without it veering toward misleading. So right. yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and just like you, it's like, we're, we're open and we reassess. And if we find a new way where we're like, this could be interesting and it actually would be more useful, then we should move toward that. So basically, apparently I just learned that forecasting and gear reviewing is the same <laughs> thing. The same. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. To elaborate a little bit on that is, is I think one of the challenges of forecasting is to condense a lot of information. We, I think we have a lot of data coming in from all these observations, weather stations, all these, a seasonal history of our snowpack, and then trying to simplify it down to two paragraphs every day. That's meaningful, useful. We can't just write the entire history of the snowpack and tell you about every single observation we've made all season. Like that just, we lose our audience that way. So it's, we have to simplify it and condense it in a meaningful way. And it sounds like you guys do the same thing with your gear reviews. Yeah. And in fact, I have no idea how this could possibly be applicable to your forecasting world, but you know, this, this buyer's guide we've got sitting right here, what we started doing was on the website, we'll write these really long form product reviews. Well, this buyer's guide was our chance to go short form, right? How do you really meaningfully in like 150 words write accurate things about a product and distill it? But what we get to do then is people might circle a couple boots or a couple skis. Then they can go over to the website and read these long form reviews. So we kind of get to play in both of those worlds, give them the nugget mm -hmm. and the long form. I don't know how that helps you though. I'm sorry. Well, we do a little bit like that with like, we have the forecast and we have what kind of called tiered information where we start with the danger rating, the bottom line, then we have the problems and then we have a, a more detailed discussion. In that sense, it kind of like builds people in more and more detail if they choose to read that far. And then beyond that, we even oftentimes hyperlink to observations that we think are most relevant or, or you know, most interesting for the day. So that would then take you to our observations page, which oftentimes is the most detailed portion of our of our products where you can see like this is exactly the snow depth this is the hardness of the layer that we saw blah 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 and and it gets you know really specific at that point so there's there is kind of this progression from a very we call our tier one users are very kind of novice level users who maybe just all they want to know is the danger rating and yeah. then we build from there got it okay yeah so many similarities. So many similarities. Do you uh, want to take my job? <laughs> yeah, we should just switch. No. You like getting up at four in the morning? <laughs> That's usually when I'm going to bed. So that <laughs> might be, we might, we might be a little off on that one. Getting back to snow science and perhaps how it is evolving a bit. I really want to ask you about fracture mechanics because it sounds badass and we've talked a little bit about it. Can you tell us a bit about fracture mechanics and maybe how that is evolving and our understanding of those? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm, I'm definitely not a physicist here and I, the people who are kind of studying this are. And so I'm, 
I've just kind of absorbed what I've what I can from it. But um, you know, I, I think our our understanding of how slab avalanches fail has evolved pretty significantly in the last ten years or so. And it, originally, there was kind of this shear model, which is basically just envision like tilting a brick up on its side and it slides off at some point once it kind of overcomes its shear, um, you know, like kind of like the friction component or whatever that, that holds it in place. And now the more um, understood theory is, is this, it's called mixed mode anti-crack model, which is a combination of a lot of things. But the, the idea is that you create a collapse that propagates across, it's, it's a, it's a fracture in the slope that propagates um, before then the shear comes into play where the, this slab starts to slide. And so what does that all mean for like the recreational user? Like that's may not seem relevant, but it has helped kind of evolve the types of snowpack tests that we use because more importantly than shear is whether the, a weak layer can collapse and drive a propagation across a slope. And so, you know, in the last, I, I don't know exactly what year these tests came out, but I'd say sometime in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a couple um, tests, newer tests that came out that have targeted this propagation propensity. Um, there's one that was evolved in the U.S. concurrently while there was one going on in Canada. And, and the one in Canada is called the propagation saw test. The one in the U.S. is the extended column test. And they both are kind of now used interchangeably between all countries and over in Europe as well. But these tests kind of target that propagation propensity of a weak layer. And so what they're doing is you're, you're not only testing does a weak layer fail, but does it does the failure drive across the column of the test? And so these columns are l larger, they're longer in width than the kind of historic tests that were used, which were like compression tests, these small small blocks that were cut. So in that way, it's it's kind of helped us apply this, you know, very advanced like physical understanding of the snowpack to a more practical use in the field that we can all use where we're, we're trying to, to determine whether the slope has the potential to, to propagate. So that's, you know, and tests are imperfect in a lot of ways, but it's, it's one of the tools that we use. And so it's, it's nice to see that kind of like mix of science and, and practical yep. coming together. Yeah. Okay. So we now have talked a bit about how snow science itself is evolving. We have talked about forecasting itself is a science, but a bit of an art. And so seems like a good question to ask you is what does your own forecasting process look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think there's sometimes I get people who ask me like, so what time do you get up to go out and like, get on the snowpack at night so that you know what it's going to be. And <laughs> the reality is like, we aren't, we aren't forecasting while being out on the snow. We're, we're doing it from the office in the morning, looking at data from our computers and we're making predictions and, and they are predictions. It's a forecast. Um, and so the, the process is, you know, ingesting all this data that we have coming in from observations and from our own field work of, What's the structure of the snowpack look like? Trying to get kind of, I kind of draw a picture, like a mental map in my head of what the snowpack structure looks like across our terrain, like in certain parts of our zone, which get more snow, 
certain aspects. So I have this kind of mental map in my head of like, this is what I think the snowpack structure looks like around. And I could, you could point to a slope anywhere in the forecast area. And I could tell you like, I think this is what I would expect to find if I dug a pit there. And some of that is based off of pits that we've been digging. Some of it's just based on my following along with weather on a, every single day and kind of knowing like what storms came in, when did the sun come out, what direction was the wind blowing. And so I've got this like mental model, the snowpack in my head. And, and we have conversations between our forecasters of kind of coming to agreement on that. Like what are the depths of certain weak layers? What's the structure look like on these certain? And then obviously like getting observations from the public is an enormously valuable um, because that's just adding to all these data points that we have. So that's the first process is having kind of ingesting all this and having a mental map of what's going on in your head. And then you come in in the morning you see what observations have been coming in overnight. And then, and then you're looking at like, okay, how is this structure going to behave with today's weather? So the next step is, is taking a closer look at the weather and what happened overnight. So we have a handful of weather stations around our forecast area that we're using to get a sense of like how much snow fell, what were the winds doing, what were temperatures doing, looking at that. And then looking at the weather forecast for the day and, and most of our forecast staff, we do our own weather forecasting based on all these different products that um, are available to us, all these weather models and the National Weather Service and such. So we're looking at the weather forecast, trying to then make an educated guess on how is the snowpack structure that we know exists out there going to respond to this weather that's coming in. And then we make a forecast based on that. And so you can see there's several points of uncertainty throughout that whole process. The first being that we're basing our mental map of the snowpack structure on all these separate data points that come to us from the public and from our, our own field work. And it's points on a map that aren't comprehensive by any stretch. It's, it's a, a few visits to a few different locations every day. So, so that's a, one of our points of uncertainty. The other one is, I'd say the, the thing that maybe throws most of my forecasts off on the days that I miss it is the weather. And like I said, we've improved on our weather forecasting, but it's still... There are days when it's supposed to snow two inches and it snows six or eight, and that's a big difference for us. That's three or four times the amount of loading on the snowpack. So maybe I'm I'm thinking it's gonna be a cloudy day and it's the springtime and like, well, nothing will happen if the clouds stay overhead. And cloud forecasting is one of the hardest things. And if the sun comes out for an hour or two, it's like all bets are off. I just blew the forecast again. So our forecasts are appropriately vague and that there's always a little bit of uncertainty built into it because there, there's just a lot of variability and a lot of unknowns coming into this equation. But that being said, I, th I think we do a reasonably good job of predicting avalanche conditions. I, you know, I feel like I've, I saw one study that said showed about 80% accuracy of forecasts. And, you know, that's, that's pretty good. And I, I think more than anything, like we, sometimes we are a step off on maybe the danger rating or maybe miss a the likelihood of a problem. But I think generally we have a really good sense of what our travel advice should be for that day. And and we try and message that within our forecast. So there, we always have like a discussion where we tell you how to manage for certain problems. And and I may not, I may miss, you know, whether the persistence lab problem is possible or likely today, but I can tell you how I'm managing that problem regardless. And And that's, I think, a, a good take home for the public is is make sure you read those forecasts all the way through and, and read the travel advice. Because I think more than anything, the travel advice is oftentimes the most accurate of everything that we do. 
backtrack a little bit to what's the process. Okay. So we're looking at the weather forecast. We're looking at weather stations and then we're coming to this like educated guess of what's going to happen that day with the snowpack. And that's based on experience. That's based on conversations with other forecasters. We have a statewide forecast discussion that happens every morning at 530 in the morning where we come in with our kind of hypothesis for the day and then we discuss it and then we kind of try to f find flaws in each other's logic and and get consensus on what's going to happen. So it's not just one person sitting there by himself. It's oftentimes 10 or 15 people having this conversation in the morning around the state, along with like our own forecast staff, maybe having conversations the night before. And, and then it's when I say the educated guessing comes from guessing is probably the wrong word. It's, it comes from being on the snowpack a lot and seeing how the snowpack behaves and having experience with what does it take for this layer to wake up? And, and we often have these conversations, like we have, we have a known persistent weak layer that's on the surface or just got buried. And we'll, we'll kind of have this round table discussion, like how much water weight is it going to take for that to start producing natural avalanches? And it, maybe it's 0.75 inches of water. And someone else says, well, I think maybe more like an inch of water. So we're, we're having this kind of discussion and we kind of arrive at some kind of average or middle ground. And, and then we, come in and look at the weather forecast and we're like, what's it going to be? And it looks like today is the day it's an inch of water coming in and that's going to tip the scales. And so we bump the danger up and that's kind of how the process looks. And we go back, go out in the field that day and try and verify what we forecasted and see if it came to fruition or maybe we realized that we were wrong. We use a lot of, you know, user like public submitted observations to help validate what we what we see and you know like when people are triggering avalanches that's bullseye data and that's super valuable and that and that's one of the major things that we're looking at too is like what's the what's the um trend in avalanche activity are we seeing more avalanches and more naturals less avalanches and and in in the state like colorado where we have a lot of users a lot of good observations coming in that's a pretty useful um, piece of data that we look at when i was up in northwest montana we were forecasting for mountain ranges that there might be only a couple people going into over the course of a week. And so we had to rely a lot less on the avalanche data and a lot more on just our, you know, understanding of the snowpack structure and then the weather patterns that, that were influencing it. So hmm. it kind of changes from, from location to location. Let's maybe talk for a second about user or public submitted observations. Let's say that somebody's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I've never written up something from my day from my ski tour and they're like i don't think i know enough i don't know anything about fracture mechanics like how how much does someone need to know how little does someone need to know if someone's like i'm the furthest thing from some snow science expert what would you tell them in terms of if you could even just let us know x or y or z that would be really meaningful in terms of helping your forecast. Yeah. What would that look like? I think that's a, a really great question because I think people are intimidated to submit observations. They're like, I don't know all the technical terminology. Rightfully so, you go to our observations page and you might see like an observation from one of our forecasters talking about a four-finger slab propagating on 1.5 millimeter facets. And you're like, what does all that mean? If if that's not the language you speak, that's totally fine. Um, the the most valuable observation we can get is, did you see an avalanche or not, or how many avalanches did you see? And oftentimes, like 
just a photo, sending us a photo. We can usually recognize the terrain that it's in. We can recognize like, oh, it seemed like that was on the northeast side of Snodgrass Mountain. And that was a, a D2, which, you know, if you don't even know what a D2 means, it means it's a large avalanche. And so you could just say, I, I triggered a large avalanche today. Here's a photo of it. And we can kind of take it from there. If you have the aspect or elevation, that's helpful. But oftentimes, if, if we kind of have a sense of where you are, we can kind of figure it out ourselves, just fly around in Google Earth and figure it out from the photo. Um, you know, other, other things that are really helpful for us is just, are there signs of instability? The common signs of instability would be shooting cracks, collapses underfoot, like I said, avalanche activity. Did you see blowing snow from winds transporting snow? Did you see rapid warming, like roller balls on the snow? Did you see heavy snowfall rates? Those are like maybe the five simplest forms of an observation that are all very helpful to us. Um, or the lack of any of those things. Like we were out today, we skied steep terrain. We didn't see any signs of instability. That helps. Believe it or not, that's like super valuable for us because oftentimes as we lower the danger, that's when we have less confidence of like, when do we, when can we actually take it down from considerable to moderate? And the more data points that we have that point towards better stability, the more confidently we can in, can like accurately lower the danger. Oftentimes I'd say that's an area where forecasts tend to lag behind the reality is like we generally want to see that conditions are improving before we forecast for that. So we, we rely on observations coming in. We're like, we know it's been dangerous all week. We've been seeing avalanches triggered. We've been seeing shooting cracks. And then at some point the stability starts to improve. We want to see observations to help kind of confirm that. So like, even if you're out there and you didn't see anything exciting, that's useful for us too. Hmm. I actually really like this. It could function as a bit of a gateway. So whoever is listening to this, wherever you live, just the thought, right, of like a picture is worth a thousand words. And it's like, take some photos, submit those to your local AVI center. And even that can be, useful and probably will start cluing you in or getting you a little more like alert to the fact that we're all like, we talk about the backcountry community, right? It's like, well, what does that mean? But like, if you're out there and you're on your day ski tour or you're snowshoeing or you're fat biking and you're just getting into a habit of looking around, it's like, that's not just for your safety, it's for everybody's. And if you're bothering to send in a photo or just given a report, didn't see anything. And I, here's where we were today. That can be meaningful. And I think starts to really provide some substance to that term, like backcountry traveler, fellow backcountry traveler or the backcountry community. Right. And I, I, I think that submitting observations or at least writing them down at the end of the day and summarizing what you see is also a really good way to to grow, you know, whether it's professionally or recreationally, but to grow in the, in your understanding of, of snow science and, and the avalanche world. I think like that's to me, when I like reflect on my career, when did I start to progress the most? And it was when I really like stopped to try and, you know, consolidate and summarize what I was seeing in the field and, and recognize patterns and, and write them down and everything. And that's how you learn is, is kind of, thinking back to what you saw throughout the day. And have you, I've talked about this before, but the, there's a, the avalanche world is what's called a wicked learning environment where it doesn't give us very good feedback. 
at least infrequent and variable feedback. So when we're out there, if you can, if you can learn from what you're seeing and, and try and like digest it in a way, in a meaningful way that you can share with others, I think that helps you kind of change from this wicked learning environment where it's like, gosh, I, I don't understand avalanches and when is it stable? When is it unstable to like, suddenly you get to understand the processes a little bit better and you'll start to learn a little bit more about it. So yeah, it's a great, great use for observations helps the community. It helps yourself. There's a lot of good things about it. So what time do you go to bed normally? <laughs> and what time do you get up? Cause I'm starting to think like, it's only, you know, seven fifteen here, but I'm like, I got to let Zach go. This dude yeah, probably got to get approaching. Yeah. My sleep habits are kind of a mess. You know, I, I usually start the forecast process at like four 30 in the morning. And so if you do the math and you try and get seven or eight hours of sleep, that would put me to bed at what? Eight 30. I definitely got to let you go. Um, <laughs> I don't do that. I'm, I'm sad to say oftentimes what happens is I, I don't get to spend enough time with, with my girlfriend and, and evenings is a nice time. So we'll put on a movie and then I immediately fall asleep <laughs> like probably on her lap. And then she'll like wake me up at 10 or 11 and drag me upstairs and say, you need to go to bed. But yeah, I, I, I generally probably go to bed at 10 o'clock and and I, what happens is I get kind of sleep deprived during my forecast cycles and I'll do like three days on of forecasting and then I get a couple days off and then I try and catch up on sleep in between. And yeah, and the other thing, you know, I, forecasting has a, little, a fair amount of anxiety and stress. I, don't, I know like people see the glamorous side of the job is that we're out skiing and during the day and that's super fun, but there's a lot of weight on your shoulders when you know that like, the danger rating that you put out there, the travel advice that you put out there could affect like the outcome of someone's day to the point where like they may not be coming home that day if, if you make a bad call and, and they thus like suffer the consequences of it. And so, you know, obviously we want to encourage everyone to make their own decisions in the backcountry, use the forecast as a starting point to then like make your own decisions. But we do realize that the second you call it low danger, people kind of turn their brains off or the second you change the danger rating, whatever. So I know there's some impact on, on, on our, on what we put out as a product, how that influences others decision-making and, and everything in the field. So that weighs heavily on me. And, and I would say like, there's, there's a lot of restless nights where I don't get much sleep at all because you're, there's a storm coming in and you're like, gosh, is this going to be the storm that takes us to high danger or not? And you're kind of thinking about it and you're like, looking out the window and it's still snowing and yeah, just, it's, it's not a great sleep pattern for me in the winter. And then I, I sleep, I sleep great in the summer. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hat that it's like a custom hat that says hashtag tired and I wear it a lot and you can probably see the bags in my eyes during the winter. And yeah, it's just the reality of forecasting. I, I, I don't think I'm the only one who, who suffers from insomnia during the winter, but it's just, again, it's, I love what I do. And, and that's one of the prices that I pay is like not the most well-rested person. <laughs> Hashtag tired. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. Well, hey, uh, well said in talking a bit about like the life of a forecaster in general and your own schedule and, and existence and mm -hmm. lack of sleep and stress, you know, so I'm very happy to be able to sit here and just get to say in person, like, thank you. Like, you know, it is a tricky snowpack here when we do go, it is really meaningful uh, for 
us and our friends and our crew and the rest to, you know, the work that you all are doing at the CBAC. So, so really thank you so much for that. And sorry about the sleep thing, but (laughs) thank you. And really fun and cool to get to sit down with you today and, and kind of walk through some of the science and some of the art of, of all of this stuff. So really appreciate it. I'm, I'm really grateful that we've got like a community here that really supports the center and, and values the product. And I, I know that happens. And that's one of the big things that keeps me motivated is just like knowing that, that folks really use it and, yeah. and love using it. So it's yeah. great. Zach, thank you. Go to bed. Skip the movie tonight. Just just <laughs> right right to bed because, you know, you got an early morning coming, I, I totally. think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do some video editing. We were out in the field today and we huh. had a pretty exciting day. Triggered a few avalanches and remotely and want to capture that and then I'll have dinner and then I'll go pass out. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you and uh, thanks for coming in and we'll be talking to you soon. It sounds great. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then please subscribe to the Blister Podcast. Leave us that nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Those really do warm our hearts quite a bit. And be sure to share the episodes you like, you know, with your friends. Don't hoard these things. Share. I also want to say thanks to Zach for the conversation and thanks to the CBAC for all of the great work that they do here in the Gunnison Valley. I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Mount Crested Butte and Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we will talk to you again real soon.